fake news. It's funny to think that before a few years ago, we hadn't heard of fake news. Now everyone knows about fake news, don't they? Fake news, we're always hearing about it. We're familiar with the idea and that we need to be on our guard. Is this news we're hearing fake or true? Uh, we need to, we need help actually to work out is what we're hearing fake or is it true? And the Bible keeps telling us about fake teaching, teaching that claims to come from God, but doesn't. The Old Testament is full of warnings about false prophets. Jesus warned about false prophets and false teachers. The New Testament letters warn about people who twist the truth. There it is in the Bible repeatedly. But the Bible was was completed a long time ago. Is it really something we still need to hear today? The warning against fake teaching. Well, I think the answer can be shown up in a sense in one word. Uh, There's one thing that maybe above all else shows we still need this, and it is the Internet. The Internet. Uh, Through the Internet, you have access to religious teaching from all over the world. It's rather ironic. I'm saying this now over the Internet. Uh, now, many of their uh, many Christians get a lot of their teaching, not from their local church, but from whatever they choose over the Internet. And there's a lot of fake teaching around fake messages from God. We need to be on our guard. We need help with knowing how we tell what's false and what's true. And one John gives us help with this. Let's turn again to chapter four. One John chapter four, verses one to six. We're going to go through these verses now. One John four, verses one to six. If you think this sounds a rather negative topic, well, there will be positive at the end. But much more importantly, God knows what we need. That's why he's put this in his word. So we mustn't jump over it because we think it's rather negative. We need to hear it. God tells us here, firstly, we need to test the spirits. Verse one, one John four, verse one. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, when I heard this first when I was a child, I I used to think, what does this mean? Test the spirits. It sounds really odd, doesn't it? Do you become aware of a spiritual presence or is there some floaty, ghostly thing around and somehow you have to test it? What do you do? Have some sort of kit out of Ghostbusters to test the spirits? It all sounds really weird. But as you read on the second half of verse one about false prophets, And as you read into verse two about what people say, you find that John is talking about false teaching done by humans, people. But he says, test the spirits because there is spiritual power behind false teaching. That's one of the first things we're learning from verse one. We're first learning we need to test false teaching and we're learning there is spiritual power behind that false teaching. I was once with friends climbing mountains in the Isle of Skye and we got into trouble because the cloud came down. 
And uh, we had to actually abandon trying to get to the top of the mountain because we couldn't see where we were going. Okay, we'd got maps and compasses, but something funny was going on with our compasses. They were pointing all over the place, not pointing to north. They were out of line with the north they should be pointing to. Why? Well, some of you might know that there are magnetic rocks on the Isle of Skye. And so those pull your compass out. The magnetic rocks mean that behind the compass pointing the wrong way, not to north, was an unseen power. Can't we call magnetism an unseen power? Pulling them the wrong way. And behind people pointing the wrong way, not to Jesus that they should be pointing to, are spiritual powers that fight against Jesus. First one is telling us, as the Bible often does, this world is a battlefield. There are spiritual powers that are malevolent, are evil, have bad intentions, are out to harm the cause of Jesus and anyone who belongs to him. It's Remembrance Day today. Think of the First World War. Think of those classic trenches and the the, uh, mud-strewn no-man's land between them. If you go and wander around in a battlefield as if everyone's friendly, you'll soon be dead. And that's true in this spiritual battlefield also. There are spiritual powers behind false teaching. But that also tells us that false teaching may be accompanied by spiritual power. Someone I know went to help with some Christian work in southern India. And he said that while he was there, he witnessed strange things that he couldn't explain. Spiritual powers seemed to have got hold of some people. And those spiritual powers were evil. Now, this man was a very sober, very cautious, very sceptical engineer who was used to scientifically explaining things. And yet he said it seemed to him that there was spiritual power there and it wasn't good. And verse one tells us to test the spirits. So not every claimed miracle And even not every real miracle means here is a teacher or teaching comes from God. That's really important because often people think, wow, look, that looked miraculous to me. This person must be speaking the truth. 1 John 4 verse 1 says no. There might even be real miraculous power in someone who speaks error. And so we must test the spirits. And the Bible gives us tests, various tests. Uh, You might know in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said, by their fruit, you shall know them. He was talking about false teachers. When people claim to speak God's message, he said, look at their lives. Do their lives show that they come from God? I say that with some nervousness because I'm claiming to tell you God's message. And that means you should look at my life and see, does it? Does it actually match what it should? That makes me nervous, but I have to say it because Jesus says we must do it. And John gives us a little more detail on how. For example, chapter three, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. He says, if people claim 
to be coming from God and giving his teaching, if they're not loving and if they're not obedient to God, there's something very wrong. Don't listen to them. And he's going to give some more tests now. So let's move on. We've had we must test the spirits. That's first one. Secondly, we have test them by the character of their teaching. That's verses two and three. Let's read that. Verse two. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. The central issue when you're trying to work out is someone giving true or false teaching is what do they say about Jesus? That's what verses two and three are saying. It's very simple in a sense. It's saying the central issue is what do they say about Jesus? If they're right about Jesus, they'll be right about everything that really matters. If they're wrong about Jesus, they'll be wrong about everything that really matters. It's obvious to anyone who knows the gospel. It's obvious to anyone who really knows God, because we can only know God through Jesus. We've only got good news through Jesus. We can only be saved through Jesus. The whole Bible is centered on Jesus. This book would be an idolatrous book if Jesus were not God become man. And so your your first and most important question about anyone who claims to be teaching God's message is. What do they say about Jesus? There's a Welsh preacher. He's retired now, but he's still around. His name's Jeff Thomas. I expect some people listening have heard of him and some may have even heard his preaching. And this preacher, Jeff Thomas, once had that familiar experience. A Jehovah's Witness knocked on the door. And Jeff and the Jehovah's Witness got speaking and Jeff was telling the Jehovah's Witness about the Lord Jesus. And then the Jehovah's Witness blurted out, oh, but we mustn't make too much of Jesus. (laughs) Well, you could probably imagine the Welsh preacher's response. What a thing to say. What a giveaway. We mustn't make too much of Jesus. Oh, but we must. In a sense, you can't make too much of it. What would be too much of Jesus? Here's the central issue. What does this person make of Jesus Christ? And and that tells us, verse two, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That tells us. Stick to the central issue. Stick to the central issue. Uh, There may be people you disagree with about baptism or spiritual gifts or exactly what's going to happen around the return of the Lord Jesus. Or what's the exact interpretation of Genesis one to three or what should or shouldn't you do on a Sunday or what should the style of our worship be? Now, none of those are unimportant. None of them are irrelevant. They wouldn't be in the Bible if they were irrelevant. So by all means, debate them. By all means, discuss them. But don't divide over them and don't denounce people over them. If someone is right about Jesus, uh, then they're right about what really matters. Stick to that central issue. 
But, but I must say, don't be simplistic about the central issue. Don't be simplistic. Now, uh, we've got to be careful here because John seems fond of making very blunt statements. And so he says here, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But we've got to take this in context. I'm not going to try and remove this and, and water it down, but we've got to take it in context. So, for example, in Mark's gospel, you have several times Jesus casting out evil spirits. And as he does so, they acknowledge who he is. If we're being simplistic, they they pass the one John four verse two test just about. So we've got to be not simplistic about this. Now, here is a careful translation of verse two. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh is from God. Did you get that? Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. Why does John say this? Well, he knew that the central issue is Jesus all about him. And he's applying that central issue to the particular false teaching troubling the church then. The particular false teaching troubling the church then was people who were claiming the man Jesus was not the Christ because they believed the spiritual is good. The physical is bad. So the Christ, the son of God, couldn't have actually become flesh. It was quite technical. They believed the man Jesus was indwelt by the spiritual Christ, but wasn't the same. That sounds quite technical, but John is here taking Jesus is the central issue. Always look to see what people say about Jesus, and he's applying it to their particular problem. And we've got to remember that and be careful about this and not simplistic. Here's an example. Are you familiar with Galatians? Do you know the letter to the Galatians? It was, surprise, surprise, written to Christians in Galatia. And there were false teachers there. And I reckon those false teachers would agree with the statement, Jesus is the Christ, come in the flesh. There's no evidence that they would have a problem with saying, Jesus is the Christ, come in the flesh. So if we're simplistic, we would say, oh, they passed the verse two test. They must be from God. But no, no, says the Apostle Paul, they are not from God. They are so wrong. Their gospel is no gospel at all. And I wish they'd have an accident with their knife while they're circumcising themselves. Harsh. Because they were dangerous false teachers. They undermined Jesus in a different way. They said, yes, Jesus is great. You need Jesus, but you also need circumcision and the law of Moses. And by saying that, they undermined Jesus. They said what he's done is not good enough. So the test of whether a religious claim is true or false is always, how does this relate to Jesus? It's always, does this fit what the Bible says about Jesus? It's always, does this tend to honour Jesus or to take away from Jesus? But it often takes careful discernment. Wise dissecting of what people are saying to work that out. We need to test the spirits. We need to test them by the character of their teaching. And then thirdly, 
Test them by the character of their audience. We move into the next paragraph, verses four to six, which I must admit are not as straightforward. Verses four to six. Let's let's first of all notice something simple. The paragraph begins with a reminder we're in a battle because verse four says you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Overcome is the is the language of battle. It's the language of winning a battle. Remember, we're in a spiritual battle. There are fallen angels and they are trying to overcome us and we must overcome them. We overcome false teaching by not being deceived by it. Ephesians 4 talks about maturity means we're not thrown everywhere by every false teaching that comes our way. Maturity is having the discernment to not be deceived. We overcome false teaching by not tolerating it. Revelation 3, there's a church and Jesus says, I've got this against you. You tolerate a false teacher, a woman called Jezebel. She's a false teacher and you should throw her out of the church because we're in a battle. No messing around here. We we need to overcome it or, or it will overcome us. So how do we overcome? Verse four. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I want to take what we've just read in verse four and what we heard a minute ago in verse two and put them together to give you two things we need to overcome false teaching. The verse two thing is we need the truth. We need objective, clear truth about who Jesus is. That's what we've heard in verse two. And then verse four says, and we need this. People from God have someone in them, someone who is stronger than those spiritual powers. We need someone in us who is stronger than the spirits behind false teaching. Who is that? Who do we need in us? It's fairly easy, isn't it? It's the Holy Spirit. He's the spiritual power that's stronger than any other by far. And he lights up our minds to understand the teaching about Jesus, to apply that truth, to to be clear on the truth. We need the truth and we need the Holy Spirit. So we get the truth and grasp the truth and live the truth. Here's a little illustration for you, and it's your church history for today. I'm, I'm keen on whenever I can drop in a bit of church history for today. Now, what job shows that you're clever? Oh, there's plenty of jobs, but do you reckon academics at university are clever? <laughs> That's quite a relevant subject at Hollywell, isn't it? I don't know what academics are, are listening to us and watching, but I reckon if you're an academic at university, you must be fairly clever, mustn't you? What university would show you're clever? Well, I reckon Oxford University would show you're clever, wouldn't it? I'm not saying that Loughborough doesn't show you're clever, by the way. No, but I reckon if you're at Oxford, you must be clever, mustn't you? What if someone was Chancellor of Oxford? I reckon he must be clever. And here was someone clever. He was called John Owen and he was Chancellor of Oxford University. And he's reckoned to be the greatest theologian England has produced. And he said... You can only benefit from the Bible by the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he said, without the Holy Spirit, you might as well burn your Bible. (laughs) He was a very calm academic man. 
And yet he said, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, the Bible will be so useless to you, you might as well throw it on the fire and burn it. That's amazing. He'd say, but John Owen, you are super clever. Surely you can just read the Bible, understand it and benefit from it. And he'd say, no, no, no. Because without the Holy Spirit, ah, oh, my eyes are closed to what it really means. And my heart is hard to, to get the sense of it and to see the Lord Jesus. And I certainly, without the Holy Spirit, even if I manage to understand the meaning of the words, will not be changed by it. To win the battle, to overcome, you need the truth, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit, who is at work in everyone born of God. Now, what we've just heard, that Christians have the Holy Spirit and have been changed by God, lays the basis for this next test to work out, is this teaching true or false? And this next test might surprise you a bit. Here it is. You can tell the origin of the message from the character of the people who listen to it. You can tell the origin of the message from the character of the people who listen to it. Let's read verse five and six. They, talking about the false teachers, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We, that's John speaking for the apostles, we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, there's a lot in there and I'm going to try and put it simply. Uh, To put it simply, it's this. False teachers have the views and attitudes of the world. When it says the world, it doesn't mean planet Earth. It it means society, humanity against God. And so the people who like to listen to them are the people who have the views and attitudes of the world. Verse six is saying God's teachers have God's values. And so the people who are in line with God's values like to hear them, like to listen to them. So here's a test for a religious teacher. What sort of person likes to listen to him? Is it someone who is chasing money and whose aim in life is to be comfortable and who wants to keep hold of sin and who wants to hear that's okay, you're all right to keep on sinning? Or is it someone who loves righteousness and whose aim is for Jesus to be honoured and who is prepared to carry the cross? What sort of person likes to listen to that teacher? John says here that tells you who the teacher comes from. So, for example, if you see a large crowd going into a building and I'm going to be really stereotyped here, but I think I need to be to make the point. And in that large crowd, all the men have long, untidy hair and they're all wearing leather jackets and they've all got things painted on the back of their leather jacket. And it says Iron Maiden you probably can conclude fairly safely that building they're going into is it's going to be a heavy metal concert there. The sort of people it attracts tells you the sort of thing that's going to go on. And if you find a religious group attracts people whose lives are just like the world, unchanged, well, what are they being attracted by? Probably a teaching that suits their sinful hearts. 
Whereas sheep of Jesus are attracted by, Jesus said this, the voice of the good shepherd. Now, I reckon that that just hints for us. I reckon verse six is hinting there for us at the best way to fight false teaching. What's the best way? Well, it's make sure the good shepherd is heard. Because if sheep hear his voice, they won't want to go after fake shepherds. Make sure that Jesus is shown and made known, because if people really see him, people whose hearts are right with God, they won't want to go after substitutes. And so, yes, we've got to do the verse one to five negative stuff. We need the negative. It's there in the Bible warning. But we need much more often to do the verse six positive stuff. Give God's message. Make Jesus known. So we're like that Welsh preacher. Do you remember the Welsh preacher? Oh, you must make a big deal of Jesus. If we're like that, that's the best protection against false teaching. One last thing. One last thing to end with. Uh, I wonder, did you see the service sheet? Uh, It went out on the church email system, a service sheet for today. And did you see the title for today's sermon? I gave it the title Loving Discernment. Now, you might be wondering quite what I mean by loving discernment, because it's purposely got two meanings. It's got a double meaning on purpose. It could mean that we love discernment. Not love finding fault, not love criticising. If you do, uh, and and it does seem to come easily to our natures, if you do, that is a sin to repent of. But we should love discernment for the sake of the honour of Jesus and the protection of his church. But it should also be loving discernment. It should be loving discernment. It should be in the context of love. It should be from an attitude and a heart of love. It should be discernment that's surrounded by love. And that's even what we've got here. What comes before our verses? We're at the start of chapter four. Well, what's the last section of chapter three? Oh, it's things like verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. What comes after our section? Oh, it's verse seven. Chapter four, verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. (laughs) Do you see, even even the way that John writes here, you've got discernment sandwiched by love. Even the way he structured his letter, it's discernment sandwiched by love. And that is what we should be like.